Maren Morris is apologizing to drag queens on behalf of an entire genre of music. The tree hugger crowd is ready to replace real meat with bugs. And I am sick and freaking tired of hearing about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. It's time for my losers of the week. Then, former NBA star Ennis Cantor Freedom claims the Turkish government has a bounty on his head. Ennis joins me with the story. Next, he went from porn star to pastor. Joshua Broom is here to tell about this wild leap of faith. Last, you know I've got some final thoughts, so let's get into it. This week has nearly come and gone, but sadly, unlike my patients, these losers are still with us. Many of you know we shoot this show in Nashville, Tennessee, which was once the home of country music, but is now more like a hodgepodge of Californians, pop star crossovers, woke radio and music industry executives, and artists who claim to sing country music, but also loathe country music's actual fans. And the mayor of that school of thought is, of course, Maren Morris. When she's not picking fights with artists who actually sell concert tickets, she's guest judging on untucked drag shows and then apologizing for the genre of music she pretends to represent. And coming from country music and its relationship with like LGBTQ plus members, I just want to say I'm sorry and I love you guys for making me feel like a brave voice in country music. So... I just thank you guys for inspiring me. I'm going to cry. I need to go. Okay, so first of all, Marin, not only are you not the spokesperson for country music or country music fans, you will certainly not apologize on our behalf. Country music, especially in the last several years, has rolled out the freaking red carpet for all things woke and especially for gays. Just because your average country fan prefers cowboy boots to penis-compressing underwear doesn't mean country music or country fans have done anything to attack the LGBTQ community. Unless you consider opposing child castration, pedophile grooming, and children petting adult genitalia to be an attack, then we can't help you there. Maren Morris is a bully, plain and simple. She makes her money off the back of country fans and then turns around and belittles us at every turn so she can grift off the back of the LGBTQ movement as well. There are a lot of things Marin can apologize for, but country music isn't one of them. But speaking of attention-seeking clowns, loser number two this week is not Prince Harry or even Meghan Markle. It's the people who will not stop obsessing over these two and clogging our timelines and our ear holes with gossip about them. We don't freaking care. They're inconsequential to us. For the love of God, shut up about them. You know, we won a pretty big war in 1783, so we wouldn't have to give a hoot about what the royals did, and yet some of you won't let it go. They are both narcissistic, grifting hacks, and if you'd stop giving them so much energy, they'd go away. So please, please, enough. All right, I'm done. My final loser of the week is this new up-and-coming solution the hippie community has brain-farted to ruin our lives. Beetle meat. First, it was the vegetarian lifestyle, then it was vegan, then it was tofu, then soy, then impossible beyond meat, and now it's freaking bugs. This concept is as straightforward as it is repulsive, grinding up mealworms, adding some sugar and salt, and calling it a burger. Now, the green community says this is the way to go because bugs use less land, water, and have a smaller carbon footprint than cows, chicken, and fish humans have been consuming since the dawn of time. Furthermore, let me add... Why aren't these activists concerned with mealworm lives? Are bugs not animals too? You know, I think the bugs and worms of the world would be pretty damn offended to know their lives don't matter to you. Tsk, tsk. 
But this is leftist progress, folks. Take a Ripley's Believe It or Not challenge and make it to food to save the planet and the animals that have been inhabiting it, again, since the dawn of time. So let me just put this out there for the record. There are a few things in life I will never do. Getting the COVID vaccine is one and eating mealworms disguised as a burger is another. So screw your fake meat and screw your worms. Those are my losers of the week. Joe wasn't in the top three this week, but he's not out of mind because, Joe, you've always got a spot on my list. Roll it. I'm honestly just shocked he could get back up. Still ahead, former NBA star and outspoken human rights advocate Enes Kanter Freedom says the Turkish government has a hit out on him, and he joins me next with the shocking details. My next guest is a former NBA star who is no stranger to controversy. He sacrificed his lucrative professional basketball career to stand up for human rights and against oppression. True oppression, not the domestic terror group BLM's feigned money-making mockery of oppression. But now not only is his sports career in jeopardy, but his life. And as Cantor Freedom claims, the Turkish regime has placed a $500,000 bounty on his head and added his name to a most wanted list. He worth more is the man himself, and as Cantor Freedom. All right, Ennis, I follow you on social media, so when I saw this, I almost thought it was a meme. I didn't think that it could possibly be serious. But you got to tell me, how did you learn about this and what is going on? So I was actually not in America when I heard the news for the first time. I was in Vatican doing a basketball camp for Christian, Catholic, uh, Muslim, and Jewish kids. And I remember right after the basketball camp, I heard about the news and I got in touch with FBI and some of my friends on the ground immediately. And the first thing they said, you know, come back to America at this moment. So I bought a ticket the next day and I landed in America uh, when I, I mean, I, my name was on that most wanted terrorist list in Turkey, just because of I talk about some of the human rights violations and political prisoners in Turkey. But this was the first time actually Turkish government put in a bounty on my head. So this was unbelievable. I just couldn't believe it because that when I had a conversation with some of my friends on the ground, they said this this is going to trigger the mafia, the, you know, the professional hitmen, even serial killers and cartels, you know. So I just cannot believe a foreign country put in an American citizen life on risk in U.S. soil. This is unacceptable. Well, it's definitely unacceptable. But I have to wonder about this bounty. Is it something that the Turkish government actually puts out there and broadcasts? Or is it something that yes. you found out in another way? So they just explicitly said, he's a wanted man. We have a bounty on his head. You know, I actually uh, posted that uh, link. Uh, it was a Turkish uh, government link. So and. The thing is, I'm not the only one that that on that list. There are other, you know, journalists, athletes, celebrities, um, you know, professors, innocent people are on that list. So if, if you're in Turkey, that if you are, say, anything against the government or Erdogan's regime, you're going to be in jail the next day. But if you are outside of the uh, country, right, you say anything against it or you tweet it, uh, you tweet anything uh, against it. You know, they're going to put your family, uh, family in jail and they're going to do whatever they can to shut you up. So for me, it was I was like, you know what, this is bigger than myself. So I have to stand up for those uh, innocent people. 
it's wild because, you know, every time we talk to you, and I was so happy to see you at the Fox Nation Patriot Awards. It was such a powerful moment, by the way. But we talk about everything going on in this country with this, the, the social justice movements, the activists, this and that. And now you're somebody who actually is a wanted man because you've been able to speak out and you've gained a platform with doing so. But what has our government, what has the FBI, the CIA, the American government been able to do for you since hearing about this? You know, really good, quick question. First of all, um, you know, whenever I had a conversation with, with FBI, you know, they, they they told me to not to, you know, leave America at least the next uh, couple of months. But, you know, I just want, you know, whenever I had a conversation with some of my friends in Congress or, or uh, Senate, they're trying to do best they can to bring awareness. But I just want one thing. I just want Biden administration to be tough on these dictatorships, you know, because... Erdogan or this this dictators in Middle East are using this diplomacy. So I really want the Biden administration and you know our government to be tough on these people, on these dictatorships because they are using it. Um, so I just I'm an American uh, citizen. People knows my story because I did uh, play an MBA. But there are so many stories out there. Their situation is way uh, worse than mine. So I hope the. Uh, President Biden or his administration is going to take, uh, you know, actions immediately. Well, I hope so as well. And and again, I'm so glad that you're here in the U.S. and that you've got some mm -hmm. safety here, but I'm sure you're always looking over your shoulder. Last question for you. Have you heard from any of your former teammates since oh announcing? You haven't heard anything. Nobody even sent, not even a message it's, to you? You know, that's the one thing that breaks my heart. It's been almost nine months. I have not heard anything from them. You know, I used to call them I, I used to call them my brothers, not even my teammates. They were my biggest uh, supporter. Whenever I started to talk about China, whenever I started to criticize Nike, it all stopped. You know, even with this bounty, you know, I get messages, hundreds of messages from different people. But I was just I was like, you know what, God, please just one of my teammates, one of my coaches, which I had hundreds of them in 11 years that I played in the league. Please just one of them just text me and say, hey, man, I hope you're doing OK. Unfortunately, not one of them texted me. And that is the one thing that breaks my heart, because I told me I am not a bad guy. I talk about the human rights violations and political prisoners in my country, and that is making me a bad guy. I'll take it. You know, I don't understand why and all of a sudden now all my teammates, NBA and 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 you know people in i guess sports world turning their back on me you know i you can watch all my interviews read all my op-eds till this day i have not said anything about politics all i cared about was human rights around the world and political uh, prisoners for for so for that reason it just makes me a bad guy and they they even started to follow me on social media but i was like you know what i'm still gonna pray for them oh well well, that's a great message. I'm really sorry to hear that. But you know, because you saw it at the Patriot Awards and everybody saw you there and we're so proud of you. And we're so happy yeah. to have you as a part of our extended Fox family. And, you know, you're an American and we love you. We care about you. And I hope that you know that there are so many Americans that are thinking about you, especially now. So please stay, stay safe and thank you for spending the time to talk with me today. Huge thanks, Tommy. You're the best. Thank you so much. All right. Still ahead, he went from adult film superstar to Christian pastor, a transition that is so unbelievable, you just got to hear it straight from him. Joshua Broom joins me next. 
The porn industry is worth an estimated $97 billion globally. It gets more views on any given day than Netflix, Amazon Video, and Hulu combined. And my next guest knows it all too well. He spent much of his adult life in the industry. He was the guy, so to speak. That was until he decided to give it all up to pursue a holier purpose. Joining me now is Pastor Joshua Broom. All right, Pastor Josh, this is one of the most interesting stories I have heard to date. So I, first I want to go back. Before you entered, you know, this holier purpose, I want to go back to the porn days. I want to yeah. know what possesses someone to want to get into the porn industry. Yeah, so for me, uh, my intention was never to pursue it. I never had any interest uh, interest in being in the industry. I moved to Hollywood, and I was modeling and acting, and I was doing okay, but a group of girls approached me and they said, Hey, uh, can we introduce you to our agent? And I had a meeting with that agent and he essentially offered me everything that I was out there for fame, fortune, notoriety. And I said yes to that. How many years were you in that industry? A little over six years. So over six years, I did, you know, a little bit over a thousand movies, uh, got, around 18 different nominations, one performer of the year once, eclipsed a, about a million dollars in earnings. Wow. Okay, so I went to school in Las Vegas. So I remember when they had these awards, because I, st I believe they still do them in Las Vegas. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so the yeah. porn industry is very popular in Las Vegas, if you can imagine that. I'm sure you know that very well. But it's amazing to me that you can be in the industry for that many years. You can make that much money. I mean, I'm sure it's incredibly intriguing. You said you made probably about a million dollars cumulative. Yeah, but for me, like, that was somewhat of an of, uh, anomaly because for guys, that's not, you know, it's, it's not the norm or for anyone because – I was at the top tier of that industry. So I was in the health and fitness space for a long time. So some personal trainers make a very good living, some scrape by. So it's just dependent on how successful you are, however you know good you are at your trade, how much uh, work you can get. And the porn industry is very much like that. So I'm very intrigued by this. How do you become a top tier porn star at the top of your game, at the top of your industry? What does that really mean? Yeah, just for me... Um, in the industry, because I got I got out of the industry 10 years ago. And what was really popular when I was in the industry was parodying movies. So, you know, I played Han Solo and, you know, Star Wars. And, and you know, think of any big movie over the last 20 years, and they would take it, um, you know, make as close as they could of that same movie without getting sued. And I played the lead in a lot of those movies. So, that was the, the thing that really catapulted me to the top of the industry. So it's acting, but with a twist, obviously. So I have to know, right. when you're in that kind of an industry, what is it like to have a relationship in that industry? What is your, your friends and your family, what do they think about the work that you're doing? That's got to be a difficult conversation to discuss with anybody who, who doesn't know that you're doing it, why you're doing it, how long you've been doing it. That whole thing has got to be difficult to discuss. Yeah, I mean, that's such a very deep question because, number one, I didn't tell anyone that I was doing it. And once they found out they did regarding my family, once my family found out I was doing it, my mom was really upset about that because I had went out to Hollywood to pursue acting and modeling. And my story is very different than a lot of people because I didn't need money. I didn't need anything. There's no reason for me to say yes to that industry. So they were shocked because... I really gave up everything I tried to 
go out there to obtain. And it really quickly blew up in my face because as soon as I did one of those movies, my mainstream agents like, hey, you you breached a code of conduct in your in your contract. You're out. So all of a sudden, I'm essentially blackballed from the mainstream industry, and I'm finding myself saying, okay, no, well, now what do I do? And I didn't listen to the, the voices in my life that were saying, hey, uh, e- even though you messed up this opportunity, you're so much better than doing that. You're, you're talented. You're smart. There's other things that you can do. So the lie that a lot of people believe when they make a mistake is they have to stay where they are. You know, You have to play with the cards you've been dealt. But the reality is I could have had, you know, just some, you know, some some perseverance, some fortitude and said, hey, OK, I have to pivot and do something else. So I didn't do that. And then relationships within the industry. It's so sad because someone so as a guy working in the industry that I work a lot, you're in a relationship with someone in the industry because the probability of someone dating you outside of that industry is incredibly low. Um, and then you're in a relationship with someone in that industry and you're both selling yourself for sex. So you're essentially both prostitutes. And then you're going out, hanging out with, you know, people who are your friends and your friends are probably also in the industry. And you're, you're finding yourself sitting across the table from, you know, a friend that you have, you had sex with his girlfriend last week and he had sex with your girlfriend today. And you're pretending you're both in monogamous relationships and you're just, it's so sad because you really believe these things. You say it's it's just work. It's not a big deal. This is just what I do. You know, we, you, you leave all that stuff on set. It doesn't really impact your real life. And you, you end up call, creating this plausible reality that is constructed by guilt and shame. And you don't even know who you are at the end of the day. And that's why the mental and emotional trauma is so impactful on the people in it. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion because porn is popular. It's always been popular. You know, porn is really innovative. Any new technology or or anything has really come from innovation by how to view porn and how to disseminate porn to more people. I mean, it's widely viewed. And in fact, porn is most widely viewed in Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places. I think people would be shocked to find that out. Well, it doesn't shock me at all. But that industry is so different and the discussion of porn is so different because you've got one side people saying that it's empowerment and then you've got another side saying that it really isn't empowerment at all it's actually exploitive and i don't know where most people fall because it's not one of those things that's got a clear-cut left versus right feminist versus toxic masculinity i mean there's people all over the board that have different views and conceptions of porn but now that you've transitioned now that you're a pastor now that you've dedicated your life to to Christ and to the gospel, how do you yeah. view the industry? Do you view it as something that's dirty or do you, you view it as something that's for others and maybe just not yourself anymore? Yeah, I mean, something that I would love to make clear and something that's really important when I have these conversations with people is that I didn't leave the industry to pursue ministry. There was two years, there was, there was a two-year gap between the time I left the industry until the time I became a Christian. So I left the industry because it was toxic. I left the industry because my mental health had suffered to the point where I wanted to take my life. I had saw the people around me, 30 people over the last 10 years have taken their life due to overdose or suicide. That is the, I mean, if you look at the industry in itself, the death rate for like people putting themselves in situations where they are killed or they're taking their own life is astronomical. 
So I would say this, and, and this is the way that I would start any talk like that. Is each and every person deserving of human dignity? Most people would say yes. And then I would say, well, can you buy someone's dignity? Because that's what you're doing. And to your point, you know, pornography has been at the very forefront of the IT industry. They really set a, a model that you see on YouTube and every other social media platform because monetization from views is how the porn industry exists. So if you are consuming pornography, you are contributing to the industry because it exists and it is funded by viewership. It is monetized through viewership. There's no ads that are being ran on those pages unless it's being monetized through the viewership. So um, to your point, yeah, it's if you believe that people have human dignity, then you are robbing them of that when you consume porn. Because what you're saying is that person is a product and that product is is, you know, it's it's up for sale. And are you willing to sell yourself? Is that empowering or are you relinquishing the power? Are you relinquishing the very thing that makes you a human being, your dignity? So you're giving that away. So I would say it's actually the opposite of empowerment. Yeah, you know, you make a good point, but there are many individuals out there, you know, like yourself and others, most notably a very famous Kardashian who really got their start, maybe not from the porn industry, but from porn <clears throat> itself. I mean, you look at Kim Kardashian, Paris Hilton, I mean, the list goes on and on. And they've been able to make monster careers by starting in that industry, whether they did it knowingly or not, that's up for discussion. But I wonder, is porn in your mind, is it dangerous? We know that there's a lack of dignity involved. It's the selling of bodies. It's the selling of sex. But is it in and of itself for the viewers? Do you think it's a dangerous concept? A hundred percent, because, I mean, if if you look at what porn does to society, it's astronomically destructive because what it's doing over 80 percent of porn videos have violence depicted within those videos and what you're seeing is you know the church or you know the world at large they're not having these tough conversations about sex in their homes and then people are are, are seeing uh this example of what sex is supposed to be and then they're going on dates expecting, well, I'm supposed to walk into a room and have sex with someone. Or if I take someone on a date, um, they owe me sex. So what you're seeing is people are viewing the, the you know, they're viewing pornography as real intimacy, as real interactions, and they're believing it to be true. And then they're going out and acting out these things. And that's, you know, it's contributing to rape culture, it's contributing to sex trafficking, it's contributing to all these things that are impacting real life. So I think it's so crazy that you you can just watch something over and over again and believe that it's not going to affect your, your mind. It's not going to affect your heart. It's not going to impact the way that you see the world because it just is. Right now, there's been a big discussion about pedophilia and grooming. It's kind of coming to the forefront, something that's been around probably since the dawn of time. But at least now it seems like people are more aware of it and people are sounding the alarm. Curious, Josh, in your time in the industry, did you ever see hints or notes of that child exploitation, pedophilia, or even something that was like feigned pedophilia? Is that something that you witnessed being in that industry for so many years? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, so there, there's the most popular types of pornography is barely legal. But if you put a girl 
in in tube socks or stockings and pigtails, are you trying to pick the 18-year-old? No, you're not. And then at the same time, there's time after time after time, there's literally multiple sites, multiple companies in their genre, their niche is girls turning 18 and they're on their 18th birthday, they do these movies. So my question is, how did those girls get there? What communication led up and how long was that communication going until they ended up on that set? Six months, a year, two years? And then if you if you talk to some of the people um, that I know that have come out of that industry, they were they were starting to be exploited in that way at 12, 13, 14 years old. So it's a clear depiction of what, what you're talking about. It's it's crystal clear because the image, the fantasy they're they're trying to create, that's not an 18-year-old by any means, because what 18-year-old is dressing in pigtails and stockings? Right. Yeah, you know, you make a very good point about that. And I think that there are probably so many stories out there, people that don't have the same story as you, where you left the industry and then you started to pursue something so much different. So let's talk about that now. Now you're you're a pastor, you're pursuing Christianity, you found God. In what way does your past career contribute to what you're doing now? And in what ways is it, is it helpful for you to connect with people? Yeah, I mean, I think through just being really vulnerable and transparent in that, you know, I believed. So I grew up without, you know, having a dad. And that led me to believe that I need to prove myself in some way. And I think so many people can can relate to that, where you need to validate yourself through, you know, making the grades or making, you know, the team or making the shot or, um, you know, getting enough followers, whatever it is that you try to do to make yourself feel good about yourself. And I thought if I became famous, I would, you know, that would fill that void I had in my heart. I became famous. I thought if I made enough money, then the the feeling of not being important would go away. You know, I made the money. I, I did all the things. I traveled all over the world. I did all the stuff. And what I found was that there was nothing that I could obtain on my own that would fix my heart. And it, and it, it to my detriment. So I was in that industry to the point I wanted to take my life. I had this wild interaction with a bank teller that did something as simple as looking me in the eye, saying my name and asking me if I was okay. And it just made me feel human for a moment. I leave the industry and there was two years where I was running, deleting my social media, covered up tattoos, shaved my head, tried to do everything I could to cover up my past. And then I met this girl and I said, hey, um, I want you to know how bad I am. And she's like, well, I want you to know that a person's not defined by the worst thing they've ever done. A person's not defined by the greatest thing they've ever done. I believe that God defines who a person is. And that person invited me to church and I went to church and I heard the truth that is found in the gospel. And that person has been my wife for the last six years. We'll be married seven years this year. We have three um, sons, so four, two, and one. And my life has been progressively, it wasn't instantaneously changed, but it's been progressively changed. And the things that I am passionate about, you know, have changed. The things that, um, the way that I live my life has changed. But to your point, um, it, like you were saying with Paris Hilton and a few other people, yes, my experiences in my life led me to where I am now. You know, I I have a book that's coming out that, you know, I, I'm working on this, this massive uh, journalistic style podcast called Unmentionable that's coming out in April. And I wouldn't be doing any of those things if I didn't have that experience. 
But in life, we have the opportunity to fail forward. And if we fall forward while learning something and taking the good and leaving the bad, we can go much faster. So by no means am I saying uh, you should fail in the way that I have. But at the same time, my life is dedicated to saying this, regardless of what happened to you or regardless of what mistake that you made, that doesn't have to define what you would next. Your mistakes can be a launching pad to your purpose. And that is my story. It's an amazing story. And I'm really excited to see what you do with it because, you know, you've got the hook there of people being very interested in your previous industry and your current yeah. industry and being able to tie it all together. But it's a powerful message. Thank you for being brave enough and bold enough to share it because I'm sure a lot of people don't talk about it. And uh, I'm really intrigued and fascinated by all of it. I'm really excited to see your book and see all the success, success that you have. Thanks so much, uh, Pastor Josh, for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. God bless you. All right, up next, a group of independent journalists did the work the mainstream media should have done two years ago. They confronted the Pfizer kingpin. My final thoughts are next. Real journalists confront the CEO of Pfizer and ask him the questions mainstream, prominent, and established media types should have asked two years ago and still refuse to to this day. It's time for Final Thoughts. The rushed and experimental COVID vaccine was first jabbed into arms in December of 2020. It was the Pfizer vaccine which required two doses separated by three weeks to be effective. It was touted as the end-all, be-all of vaccines, a lifesaver, a must, a tool so safe and effective against COVID, it was forced on Americans and required so much as eat indoors instead of outside like a dog. Two doses were supposed to do the trick, then it was two plus a booster, then another booster, and so on and so forth. Well, you remember. A lot of indications right now that uh, are telling us that there is uh, uh, a protection against uh, transmission of the disease. There is no variant that we have identified that escapes the protection of our vaccine. Against COVID to come now with a treatment of 90% effectiveness, you know, personally makes me a lot very proud about uh, it. And we know that um, the, three, the two doses of the vaccine offer very limited protection, if any. The three doses with a booster, they offer reasonable protection. It is necessary a fourth boost right now. The, the protection that you are getting from the third, it is uh, good enough, actually quite good for hospitalizations and deaths. It's not that good against infections, but doesn't last. That was Pfizer CEO Albert Borla in a sequence of mental gymnastics routines and an ever-changing story that smelled then and certainly smells now like a load of hot BS. But mainstream media journalists have yet to really grill the man, have yet to really hold his feet to the fire. Well, fine, step aside. This team of independent rebel journalists will do it for you. Mr. Borla, can I ask you, when did you know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission? How long did you know that without saying it publicly? Thank you very much. I'm sorry. To that question. I mean, we, we now know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission, but why did you keep it secret? You said it was 100% effective, then 90%, then 80%, then 70%. But we now know that the vaccines do not trans stop transmission. Why did you keep that secret? 
Finally, someone had the balls to do it right there on the streets of Davos outside of the One World Order cult meetings separately titled the World Economic Forum. Hold that man accountable. Sue that company, others like it, for everything they're worth. Get rid of these immunity protections Big Pharma operates under. Find out which politicians on both sides of the aisle are getting pharma kickbacks. Someone has to answer for this. And not for my benefit either. I'm un-COVID vaccinated and proudly. I don't have a dog in this fight other than not wanting to see my fellow Americans suffer from vaccine side effects in taboo silence or drop dead suddenly. The White House is still pushing boosters. City and state health departments are still running COVID vaccine propaganda ads on a daily basis. And in Connecticut, they're poised to wipe away parental consent for vaccines for children 12 and older. Liberals, I know you live and die, no pun intended, by whatever gospel the Democrats force feed you, but come on. This isn't about left versus right. It's about public health and getting answers. I thought y'all were about standing up to the man. Well, that man would be a good start and him next. Hug trees, eat bugs, dye your hair green and pink, plaster rainbows and black squares till your heart's content. But going along with this vaccine narrative isn't the hill you want to die on, quite literally. This is enough of this. The COVID vax mafia needs to be dismantled and now. Those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.